Welcome to The Space Between. This is part two of our first two-part episode, where we talk about five things that we don't believe anymore. Because this faith thing, this spirituality thing, it's a journey. And if you don't ever stop to look back to see where you came from, sometimes it's really easy to forget how much ground you've covered. So enjoy listening to the second part of five things that Doug and I no longer believe. Welcome to The Space Between. All right, let's um, let's go on to this next one here. Um, I have it written down. It's called guarding and greeting. And the way that I I used to approach my faith was somewhat uh, <sighs> argumentative. I just felt like I was always looking for a good argument. And what's more is. I loved arguing for positions that I didn't even believe. Yeah. So if you could argue with me about something you deeply believe, I could take a position that I don't believe and convince you that you're wrong. Somehow that felt like a win to me. Yeah. And that is the most ridiculous, like, awful thing I can even think of now. Like, what was wrong with me? Yeah. And so I kind of lived this life where I was like, okay, anybody that's actually going to approach what is borderline real faith to me... Um, is going to approach me about my beliefs in a real way. I'm going to just argue with them. I'm going to I'm going to combat them. I'm going to guard them at all costs. And in some ways, even felt like the responsibility I was told was mine growing up um, is to kind of guard the church, is guard the faith, is yeah. to be this person who stands by the front door and uh, make sure that we get all the right people there. Uh, you yeah. know, keep the riffraff out. Yeah. You know, let's not ask the questions. Let's not question too much. Right. Uh, and that's also kind of ridiculous now, um, especially as kind of where I've, I guess, where I've come. Um, so a couple of thoughts about guarding and greeting. Uh, and so a guard is someone who is tasked with protecting something. And their job is to stop or block or sacrifice themselves to stop or block any threat against the thing they're trying to protect. Um, the posture of a guard is serious, they're alert, they're skeptical. In fact, a good guard will see everyone and everything as a threat until proven otherwise, and maybe not even then. Which is why we need guards. We need guards at banks and museums, at concerts. It's why we have a national guard. It's why we have police. You know, People that, that kind of approach life this way, they, there's a place for them. However, I don't know that the place is standing outside the doors of the church. I don't know that the place is standing outside the doors to faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think what we need out there is a greeter. Uh, so someone who is tasked with welcoming people. Someone who's warm and friendly and smiling, who offers a hand to help. Uh, someone who's well-versed in basic information, who's willing to introduce you or connect you to other people. Uh, the posture of a good greeter is going to see everybody as a potential friend. So rather than a potential threat, a potential friend. That's where I'm at today. Where at one point I would have been the guard, today I feel like I am the greeter. And I think it's easy for us to all think as we grow in faith, for us to go, well, where I am now is better than where I was. And so obviously that's the right thing. Um, In this case, though, I have a hard time finding in Scripture where Jesus tells us to be a guard standing outside the door. 
If anything, in Scripture, I see a God and I see a Son of God who they're the ones who have control of the door. Mm-hmm. I don't have the key. I'm not. My job isn't to stand in front of it. My job isn't to block it. They hold the key. Yeah. They are in charge of the door. And so uh, there's been points in the life of the church where we've had people stand in front of the door and protect it. And so we decide that people are not allowed to come through based on their skin color or their gender or their sexual preference, based on the language that they speak, based on their immigration status, based on the size of their paycheck, the kind of clothes they wear, the car they drive, on their past, what they did 20 years ago, what they did you know, just this morning, we hold those things against them. Uh, maybe it's because their beliefs are a little different and we just feel like they don't belong. But I just have to say that I'm at a place where I don't think that's our job. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, if it's anybody's job, it's Jesus's job. So when we make it our job, we take away his job and we do it really badly. Mm. Uh, and that's sad to me. Yeah. So when I think about what Jesus left us with, what he commanded us to do, what he commanded his followers to do, was he said to love one another as I have loved you. By this, the world will know that you're my disciples. And he said that right after he led them in the very first communion, after washing their feet. He did it right before he died for them. And so better questions, I think, that we need to ask ourselves is not how are we guarding the door. It's how are you doing it loving one another? Because that's hard enough, Mm. right? We struggle with that. We do that poorly enough. How are you doing it washing the feet of others and actually serving others? Actually taking on the role of what would be the lowliest servant's job. How are you doing it? How are you doing it at leading one another in communion? You know, drawing attention to the broken body and blood of Christ through something mundane like bread and wine. Um, How are you helping people see something greater and deeper and more meaningful? Uh, How are you doing it at dying for others? And and maybe an easier way or better way to say that is how are you doing it dying for to yourself on behalf of others of picking up the cross and bearing it on behalf of the least of these because you can like those are the questions that I think are worth asking today more so than who belongs and who doesn't who should be in and who should be out those things seem to be Silly questions to yeah, me. Yeah. Well, I mean, our development as humans, right? Like, throughout time, it was a big part of, like, the survival of the species in order to say who's in and who's out. Hence why we would, like, as just in Europe, and I went to, like, this thing where they had, like, different decapitated heads that were, like, hung outside of different tribes. Right. Out of their like side of the gate. And what was that saying? It was saying like, if you're not part of us, this is what happens. Right. So it's like, it's like they didn't need a guard. They just had other people's heads there. Right. 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 Uh, Same thing with like shrunken heads. It's like, listen, we have this, all this magic that can actually do this to you. Like, so like the species of humanity is based out of that, like going back to like the amygdala of like fear and um anxiety and um if like 
fight or flight kind of deal. And what Christ actually was asking us and inviting us into is like, listen, there's something that's even beyond that that's much better, and that is like this this life of love. So I, it reminds me of um, Fred Rogers, uh, Mr. Rogers. Uh, there's a story that like his car got stolen, and uh, they put on the radio, you know, Fred Rogers' car was stolen today, you know, and, and the news. And uh, the next day, Fred Rogers' car is back with a note that says, I didn't realize it was your car that I stole. I'm so sorry. Like, I would never have stolen your car. You've done so much for my life. Hmm. And th- th- now I don't know how true this is, but I've even heard a continuation of the story that then Fred Rogers found out who that was that stole his car and offered him a job. And I don't know if that's how true that piece is, but either way, it matches up with the Mr. Rogers that I know. You know what I mean? Like, this was, like, the first guy that was like, hey, you know what? We're going to put as many different colored people as we can get onto our TV show because, like, there's a real problem in this country the way that Mm -hmm. we interact with each other, and we're going to work on that. You know, um, kids need to know that, like, you can talk to anybody and... They all have stories, and we all have, you know. He just loved life so much, and it was like, it perpetuated. You could see that come out of his TV show. <laughs> it, was, it was it was magical. Yeah. So, I also would say, uh, uh, Nick, I have seen this change in your life. <laughs> That's cool. Like, I have, like, like, from the place where everything was debated to now it's like, well, listen, let me just... I think it, sometimes you sum it up of like, how can we find a place of like commonality here? Mm, common ground, yeah, essential. And I think that um, I've seen that just come out of you brilliant, brilliantly. And uh, just want to like say that. Thanks. That that's actually really encouraging yeah. too, because sometimes like we have these these moments of growth that we yeah. go through, yeah. and we think we're going through them, right. but we're like, well, maybe this is not apparent to the rest of the world. Like maybe yeah. maybe I really haven't changed that much, yeah. but that's that's really affirming yeah. to me because yeah. I, I was super argumentative at, at one point. Yeah, well, the first time we met, uh, you argued with me um, at Rockwell's for about that's I a was local, like, that's a local restaurant. By yeah, the way. yeah. So like we were, we were meeting for the first time. We were because our wives are sisters, and so like um, I had only been married maybe a year. And she's like, "Yeah, we're gonna meet like Carissa's boyfriend." And so I, I'm talking to you, talking to you, and I'm like, "I think you would ask me the question of like, hey, like, so like, where are you at with God or whatever else?" And I was like, "You know, I've just really been thinking about the kingdom of God." And I said a few things, and you were like, well, "I'm not so sure about that." <laughs> and I'm like, "You're not so sure about the kingdom of God? All right." <laughs> no and, recollection yeah, of this whatsoever. Yeah. And I remember leaving leaving Rockwell's and being like, I'm not so sure Chris's boyfriend likes me or if he just wants to argue with me. Oh my gosh. And you know what's crazy is that like I am I love the kingdom of God. I know, I of course was you do. Arguing for the sake of arguing. Exactly. So silly. Yeah. Uh. So so I say this in like the the kindest place in my heart, like Nick, I've seen this change, and not only that, but like you were one of my best friends in the world. So oh. like, it was just when I just when you were saying like, the guard opposed the green. I used to argue for no reason. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I've experienced that at least once in my life. 
I'm so glad that somehow we pushed through that. Yeah, of course. To where we are today. Of course, of course. So glad. Yeah, yeah, me too. Well, you know, it would be so interesting if there was a way to be able to go back and get snapshots. Of course, yeah. Of how other people have perceived you during your life. Oh, man. I am so certain. I would be so mortified and embarrassed about Uh, so many of those snapshots. Well, Amber and I were just recently talking about how, like, for whatever reason, sometimes people are like, is Doug mad at me? And, <laughs> and and then they like they always ask Amber because she's so much more friendly and kind. And so like, and she's like, I, no, that's just his normal face. <laughs> like he just sometimes has some things going on in his head, and he he's not mad. I don't think. Like he, she's like, sometimes I feel like that too. Like he's just he's distant. And it's like yeah, I definitely have had that situation where like, yeah, that's too what funny. do people what do people really think of me? I'm like, I'm not really sure. I'm not really mad at anybody. I'm. Truth is, I'm just in. I'm in the stars somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Doug's so. just in his head right now. He's uh, not really in his his face. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. so good. So good. <laughs> Thank you for um, pushing through with oh, me. Of <laughs> Thank you. It's, my, it's been my pleasure. <laughs> oh man. So, just a couple more here. My inclusive versus exclusive is my next one. I used to, from like Nick, I used to think that like the kingdom of God needed help drafting <laughs> the the occupants and um, evangelism and all of that was very important to me. And I'm just not so sure that that's really that important to me anymore. Um, I think it's really, it, there's a place, I guess, for, for people going out and telling people that Jesus loves them i think that's really great but i think we have to be really careful about and what um what attitude we're, we're doing that in um for instance standing outside of an abortion clinic saying god hates what you're about to do and those kind of things I'm not so sure is a very loving way to work with women uh and really really hard times so uh i think that essentially where i have really grown is the fact that um I I guess I'm just at a place where when I have somebody tell me, yeah, I don't really believe in God, I'm okay with that. And I think that the kingdom of God can, can still work with them and still mm-hmm. be a part of, like, be the... I don't think that the kingdom of God deci- decides, like, okay, well, there's a Christian, so we can work here and then over there. I think the kingdom of God is everywhere. I think it has descended as like as Christians like worldwide, you know, is still the majority of the faith in this world. And the Lord's prayer essentially says like we pray for the kingdom to come down and the kingdom comes down. So I believe that it's here. I believe that it encompasses all. And um, yeah. So regardless regardless where a person stands in their faith does not determine what God's doing. So some people would feel like so like um, thinking of particular people in my life yeah. who believe in a particular way. Yeah. If they had a conversation with somebody and they were like, "Well, I'm an atheist," yeah, or or maybe it's even uh, more poignant for it to be like uh, somebody who they think is a believer who goes, "Well, no, no, now I'm an atheist." Yeah. They feel particularly motivated to somehow get that person back on the boat. Yeah. Because yeah. what if? They die. Yeah. So so 
what are do you feel any sort of motivation by a person's what happens at the in eternity to this right. person who now claims to like no longer believe right well, is there any part of that to you that well i guess the first thing is the under like i've acknowledged the fact that i don't know what's going to happen after i die um so what do i mean by that i mean that i think like so what i believe is that people will go be with god but let's break that down a little bit so the protestant world doesn't believe that saint peter is standing up there with the keys but the catholic world certainly does that peter is you know up there and like part of the judgment well then you've got like for instance the mormons who believe that joseph smith is up there and it's going to also help with the judgment so like every every sect of christianity alone has their own view of like what's that judgment piece gonna gonna happen and the truth is i don't think any of us really know hmm. So, um, how that whole thing happens, does it happen literally like it does in Revelations and like the lake of fire, which is Lake Erie, uh, opens up and, uh, (laughs) and like Satan and all of his demons are judged and thrown into the lake of fire as well as all of the new occupants of hell who weren't believers of Jesus. Is that what's really literally going to happen? Or was that just a vision that John saw? And wrote down and it means something else or did he not even see a vision and he was painting a picture and code for the the roman church okay maybe so we're not really sure so that's just the christian standpoint then you have all the other religions in the world and their views of like what what happens when when they die Mm. and i just think that like when you read this poetry from each religion it's so beautiful and especially when they start talking about the entrance into eternity it just to me it almost all sounds similar and so i'm like i don't i don't really know i don't know what happens and so like when a person to get back to your question when a person says i'm an atheist i say great what do you think about god let's talk about that well it doesn't matter like whatever they think is great like like maybe they're big believers of science fantastic me too Let's talk about like how magical and how crazy science is. We just found a, ner- or a new planet that has three suns. Crazy. So like, um, yeah, great. I mean, let's talk about it. I think that also there are atheists that are closer to Christ, in my opinion, than there are some Christians. Mm. When you By- say closer to Christ, you mean in terms of emulating a christ-like life or you mean closer in a relationship well let's 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 put it in a couple different contexts i think that if you emulate christ regardless if you believe in him or not in my opinion i think that if the kingdom of god is everywhere they literally are closer to jesus okay yeah opposed to a person that goes to church and says oh yeah i believe in jesus but they're a real dirtbag Mm. Now, that's me making a judgment call saying someone's a dirtbag because really, what do I know of their context and like how they got there and what the story is that, that became that. And then also, what, what are my truths and my ethics? So let's, I guess, framework some things. Don't make judgments. Yeah. Not about Lake Erie either. Right. 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 I mean, <laughs> it probably is Lake Erie though, right? <laughs> right? Like... 
the lake of fire is Lake Erie. Well, it's right next to the mistake on the lake. That's Cleveland. <laughs> Sorry. I hope nobody listens to our podcast there. Well, you know, if you do, it's all in good fun. I was just, you know, spent too much time in Pittsburgh. And you have the same things to say about Pittsburgh. I know it. So. But seriously, Cleveland, think about it. Your lake was literally on fire before. That happened in the 60s. That's how that's how polluted the lake was at that time. It literally caught on fire. I think we've digressed. Yeah. I'm just <laughs> but I'm just saying. Like All right, so inclusive versus exclusive. We're, yeah. we're still there. Okay, so right. inclusive, exclusive, essentially I just I think the kingdom of God can work with all people. Yeah. And I'm not going to make judgment calls on what happens in heaven. That's God stuff. I'm not going to make judgment calls on even where you are with God. Because that's God stuff. Yeah. Uh, I like to think that also, I guess, if we're, we'll get to atonement later. But I guess, to me, the power of Jesus' blood and what he, what he did for us, regardless, Jesus is God. His blood then must be pretty powerful. And so it must be doing a lot more than what maybe we give credit to. All right. And so, and I don't want to make this yeah. this item about something it's not about. Yeah. But I think about who probably listens to our podcast. Yeah. And at this point, it's just people we've told. Yeah. Right. I don't think people are like finding this all by themselves, or maybe they are. I have no idea. Yeah. But um, concerning like where we live. Yeah. Being um, evangelism is something that is important like we're all told to grow up like you gotta share your faith yeah it's part of your job it's part of your role you gotta share it yeah and so with this idea that you're proposing like is there an um evangelistic bone in your body i I mean except for to say that like i really like jesus i don't think that that has beyond that like i think that what jesus taught is beautiful and anyone can learn from it so how do you share that Uh, i just say that just say that okay (laughs) Okay, so there's not like a somebody saying I'm an atheist isn't a compelling. You gotta shove it down their throat suddenly. No, I mean, so my 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 best friend growing up uh, was a believer for a long time and has now just become an atheist. And I still like we get into some pretty great debates, but it's all out of love. At the end, we're like, dude, I love you so much. And his is just trying to figure it out. And he also has such a good knowledge about, like, the Christian worldview. Yeah. And then, so he's really thought about, like, these these different areas of, like, to me, it just doesn't line up is kind of the way it works for him. And so, um, and he also is really hurt by the church of, like, what the church has done. And what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to be like, dude, but the church is doing really great things to other people, so just get on board. You know, like... To him, it's like, well, if this is supposed to be a message of love, it's really hurt a lot of people, and so I don't really want to be a part of it. Yeah, that's his truth, and that's great. Like, mm-hmm. he and the reason he's there as an atheist now is because he literally loves people. Is that not Christ-like? I, I'm sorry, but I think it is. Like, I think that 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 is Christ-like, regardless of whatever you believe. Because, like, at the end of the day, doesn't God believe in us? Mm-hmm. I mean, if God believes in us, is that enough? Or are we saying that we have the power to be like, well, our decision matters. Like, I don't pick God, but God picks me. That just doesn't link up. So. That's interesting to look at it. I, 
And so I realize that I'm I've straight a little bit further down the path than a lot of church denominations probably like. Um, but I'm I'm really comfortable with it there. I, I also spend a lot of time telling people that like even if they don't believe that I'm like you know. Like, they're like, you probably think I'm going to burn in hell because I don't believe in Jesus. I'm like, I'm not so sure about that, to be quite honest. I think that the way that you treat people is pretty amazing. Mm. And um, if I would have to make the decision, I wouldn't send you to hell. And I feel like God's probably a better entity than I am. So, I don't know. Would hope, right? Yeah, yeah. I think, I think so, like, and I guess the reason I was asking is because I think there are people that, again, that are going to listen, that are going to, have grown up with this kind of continual push to share their faith, share their faith, share their yeah. faith. You're responsible for right. your friends either going to heaven or going to hell, like because you know, like yeah. you might be the only Jesus they ever see, sort of thing, or that sort of thing. And I don't feel particularly motivated either <clears throat> to shove Jesus down someone's throat if they tell me that they don't believe. Yeah, I actually feel motivated to hear why. Yeah, like what? Like tell me more about why you don't believe. Yeah, or yeah. or tell me what you don't believe because it's totally possible that I don't believe that either. Right. So as you define yourself as a non-believer or as an atheist, I would actually define myself the same way right. because I don't believe in that God either. Yeah. I, that's totally possible. So it makes me want to ask more questions but not somehow shove this prepackaged idea of Christianity down their throats in, in hopes that somehow they find salvation yeah. in the midst of that. Well, I mean, what's the motivation behind evangelism? The motivation behind evangelism is that we continue, like, the the church, right? And it's to get people so that they don't go to hell. So, in some ways, I guess that that is some kind of form of love. But, hmm. um... So you're saying that there's... If you were to really kind of boil it down... Right. Two reasons. One is kind of this self-perpetuating like, wheel of the church being able to continue on. Yeah, like the survival mode. That's right. It's just been from the very beginning to, to now of like, well, we have to have people in order to continue. And the other reason is because we want to love people and we don't want them to spend eternity separated from God. Right. So if you were to eliminate the, the narcissistic self-perpetuating wheel of the church and just sit in the, we want to love people and we care about their eternal life. Right. If you, if you sit there, then there's in the love piece, no one's ramming Christianity on anybody else's throat. Right. Fair enough. Yeah. So, and I've just found that like, I think that in evangelism, um, the best way to evangelize is not the, the, in my opinion, not the door-to-door deal. It is the, like, being a, genuinely a friend to somebody and, like, realizing that this person really does care about me. Mm-hmm. And when that person cares about me or I care about them, that we start to, there's something that becomes really beautiful behind that. And that is the beauty of, like, you know, friendship and that connection of, like, God creating two people in his image yeah working together you know uh opposed to uh yeah maybe i love you but hey just want to let you know that you might burn in hell if you don't make this decision see you later you know like i just feel like that doesn't look like love right like if this is all about relationship and loving each other then yeah you miss you're still missing the boat, mm. even if it's just like, well, this is out of love and for humanity and 
whatever else. That's good. So yeah. that's good. Um, my next one is kind of in a similar vein, yeah. which is why we kind of paired them together here. It's the idea of ascent and descent. And I would say that the faith that I grew up with, uh, and I, and I feel like I throw my faith under the bus all the time when I say that. So I'm not throwing anybody who was like teaching me my faith as I was growing up. I'm not trying to throw them under the bus. I'm saying that the conclusions that 10 year old Nick came to and then 15 year old Nick came to and 18 year old Nick came to as he was exploring all these things with a lot of different information from a lot of different people, that faith um, seemed to be more about ascent, about me getting to heaven. Uh, It seemed to be more about my salvation, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And what I've, I feel like I've learned is that if my role in this faith thing is to emulate Jesus, Jesus' ministry was all about descent. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I have this scripture here from um, Philippians. And it said, um, Have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who in being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So God, so Jesus God is equal with God according to Philippians. And by very nature is God. Didn't use that to his own advantage. He made himself nothing. He takes on the role of a servant, and not just the role of a servant, but the role of a servant who is a man who is born as a helpless baby, and he is obedient to God the Father, even to death on a cross, as a criminal, one of the lowliest places that you can possibly be. So Jesus descends from the very highest place to essentially the very lowest place. That's the sort of ministry that we have, like, the example of. Yeah. Like, that's what we, like, that's what the disciples saw. Like, mm-hmm. that is, the picture they get of Jesus is Jesus, who is God, coming down and being obedient even to death on a cross as a criminal. The picture that they don't have is the next part of this verse where then Jesus ascends. Like, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So in order to ascend, you descend. Mm. And so the part that I think we've spent so much time in church world talking about is the ascent part, mm-hmm. and we don't spend enough time looking at the descend part. Yeah. And so there's all sorts of, uh, I think, ways that that's applicable. And uh, you can talk about privilege. You can talk about uh, just lots of things. Uh, but the thing for me that I've realized is that Jesus' ministry is a ministry of descent. So my job is not to um, walk around and tell people that they've got it wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, my job, I, I didn't see Jesus doing that, right? I, I don't see Jesus walking around and telling people to focus on getting jewels in their crown. Um, I don't see Jesus walking around and like just pushing his fully godness part in their face. Um, No. We that follow Jesus are a chosen people, and we are a chosen people so that we can tell others that they're chosen too. Mm -hmm. Like that's the really cool, beautiful thing. It's it's poetic. It's, It's gorgeous. And uh, we're not a chosen people to be above others. Mm. 
we're a chosen people to in some ways be below them mm-hmm. to lift them up mm-hmm. so that's good man it makes me think of like John of the Cross you know the story of John of the Cross so John of the Cross he was like you know I'm missing something so instead of going and you know being big bad priest or whatever else he stripped away all his labels and he went and washed dishes and like uh, served like the hungry hmm. for the rest of his life because hmm. he was just like this isn't this isn't working just being a priest yeah. it's just not it's I feel like I'm above people and so <laughs> yeah it, it, it just seems to me like when we look back at even some of the greats that have come out of the faith all of them have been like wow like I have a whole lot I've been blessed with a lot of privilege here and yet um, Jesus was all about the homeless and the weak and like working with them and become like becoming one of them and so maybe I need to strip away everything that I have and get back to like how Jesus did it because um, I don't know if I can think of a lot of well, maybe that yeah actually I can never mind <laughs> rethought that that phrase I was gonna say I can't think of a lot of um, leaders that have come from the faith that were like build yourself up and make yourself really really great and uh, God's gonna bless you and do all these things in like history but then you know uh, of course it's just I just don't look up to those people mm. the people I look up to are the ones that have right so it's like yeah they're, they're, they were there but so um that's a really interesting point too when you think about it yeah um that's cool though nick like i wonder if uh do you feel like growing up maybe i felt this way at least when i wanted to escape Hmm. like that's that's why i was focused on the heaven piece like i was ready to get out of here like, let's do something better than this. This isn't that great. Mm. And so um, it was literally just escapism, like focusing on if I'm good, then I get to live in this awesome place with with a big, big house with lots and lots of food. You know, like... <laughs> yes. I remember that song too. Yeah. <laughs> well, of course, and then like the... like. When we were growing up, the Left Behind series came out too, right? Right, All sure. All about the rapture. Yeah. yeah. And I, so, like, I get that. Like, I, I feel you. I think the other thing, too, is, like, it's a misunderstanding of even the idea of rapture. Like, rapture is a meeting in midair. Yeah. It's not like we are gone. Yeah. And then if we really look at, like, Revelation, like, you had pointed out before that we don't really know exactly how to interpret Revelation. There's right. a lot of different theories on how you can do it. Yeah. But let's just let's just look at the end of Revelation. Yeah. There is a new Jerusalem. There's a brand new city. And where is it created? Here. Yeah. Not somewhere else. Oh, yeah. This place is reshaped. Yeah. So that makes me think, well, there's something about this place that is important. Yeah. Not getting out of this place, right? Right. And that's something that I never heard growing up. Yeah. Yeah. The truth is, when we look more and more at like the kingdom coming down, the fact that, the fact is the ground that you stand on, no matter where you stand, is holy. And that God's presence is there. Mm. And so, um, is that taught a lot? No, it was a lot more about, like, if you're really good, and you do the right things, and you love Jesus, you get to go to the place that is holy. Right. 
And I think that it goes right back to uh, the recycling and taking care of this earth and those kind of things too. Of like when we don't do that, we're missing the fact that this place, not only is it holy, but the first instruction to people where you're now in charge of this place, take good care of it. Yes. And uh, overall, as as a species, we're not doing too good at that. No. So, good deal. Yeah, well, let's keep going. Okay. So, um, my last one is, uh, I used to think that God was angry at me. It turns out I was just angry at me. Um, basically, it's that. Like, this is just more or less me realizing that... Um, I guess I would have read a lot of the Old Testament. I think that that's probably what happened was in the at least as a, a teenager, I would start on Genesis and I'd make it to about maybe maybe if I was lucky judges and uh, but just heard a lot about like God's wrath being poured out and um, I definitely had that perspective of God that like when God's mad, he does something about it and clearly when I would sin or when I would do something wrong, I would needed to be like, either punished by him or like he was just angry with me and he would distance himself from me. Um, so the reason I was far away from God was not so much that I was moving away from him, but he was moving away from me. Um, and these are all like, these were all just ideas that I essentially, I think I developed my own faith in that. I don't think that that had anything to do with my upbringing or anything else. It's just the way that I perceived reality. And um, it took until I was 33 years old to realize that Jesus really, really loves me. And not just Jesus, but like God the Father like and the Holy Spirit. Like hmm. the entity of God loves me and cares about me and wants something good for me. And... Um, on the other end of that, then realizing that, well, then who was angry? Because someone was mad. And I, it was me. I was, I was angry at myself. I was letting myself down. I've made a lot of really terrible decisions in my life. And um, I've held myself hostage because of those bad decisions, opposed to even looking at some of the good decisions that maybe I made. Um, so, yeah. Uh, on the other end now, like, am I, do I still struggle with, like, backtracking into that? Uh, maybe a little, but not, not so much. I feel like the love is too big. Mm. Um, that when you really get <laughs> embraced by God, that, uh, you realize that, like, he was always there. He was always hugging you. Always, like, all around and inside, like, everywhere like you can't escape it and so like um now now the hard part is like not being mad at myself hmm. so like and being like disappointed with myself and so yeah that's kind of what i've been learning and, and i think that this is probably the new the new place that i will continue to like work with at least in the next foreseeable future of like what does it mean to um to be fully loved and embraced by god and yet not okay with myself um and so 
if I can figure, and it's not about me figuring out, I think it's more about just accepting the fact that there is divinity within me, and then what am I supposed to do with that? Mm. So, that's that. (laughs) When I was a youth pastor, um, I was doing this this like Bible study with junior hires. And so sixth graders, yeah. 12 year olds, 11 and 12 year olds. And we were watching this video. And in the video, one of the characters says, God doesn't make junk. Yeah. And then yeah. at the end of our time together, I had everybody like write down this little piece of paper, like what they realized tonight. Right. And this 12 year old wrote down a piece of paper and handed it in. And said, I realized that God doesn't make people junk. Other people. And if that's true, then God didn't make me junk either. Right. And that's all they wrote down. And I read that like a couple hours later after everybody's gone home. And I'm like, whoa. Yeah. Like this little kid is just so wise. Yeah. Yeah. God doesn't make junk. And we so focus on telling other people that treat others yeah. well. Yeah. And we forget that God didn't make us junk either. Right. God's he, not angry at them. He's not angry at you. Yeah. That, that was such, it's so profound that, um, so like Nick was the youth pastor at the church that I attend for several years, but then he left for another position elsewhere. And I still stayed there as a youth pastor. And those kids that heard that message when they were, you know, 11, 12 years old, continued to reference that on the regular all the way up until they graduated. Hmm. So, like, it was a lasting impression that stayed there that was like, God doesn't make junk. And it was almost as if, like, it was a mantra in some ways of, like, them having to remind each other that um, sometimes I feel pretty crappy. Yeah. But God does it. But it's not... God didn't do something wrong here. Like, I am good. I am divine. So, yeah, that was... It's great because, like, <laughs> these kids had this thing and I, like, kind of grew up with them in some ways. And yet, it took them graduating them being gone, I think, for maybe a year or two now. And uh, finally, I'm like, oh, wait, God doesn't make junk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, man, the students have become the teacher. Totally. Good teachers learn from their students. But the thing is that as a sixth grader, the way that we verbalize what you're talking about is that I'm junk. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But by the time we become young adults and adults, and sometimes even up to the point where we're 33 years old, that translates into God is angry at me, Mm -hmm. or God doesn't like something about me, or that for some people that God hates me. Yeah. And that is like... One of the saddest things yeah. that I've ever heard someone say yeah. is that God made me wrong or that God hates me for being me or something like that. Yeah. And like, I'm just like, man, the brokenness that you must feel constantly, mm-hmm. that breaks me mm-hmm. because God loves you. Mm-hmm. At nighttime, when we put Eli to bed, Eli's my son, I say, Eli, who made you? Mm-hmm. He said, God. Mm-hmm. I said, how did he make you? Perfect. Yeah, perfect the way you are, Eli. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's something that I heard someone else say somewhere that they say to their kids. And I was like, I need to say that to my son. Yeah. Not just as a reminder to me, but I need that narrative to be written on his heart yeah. from as early on as I can get it. That's good. Yeah. I think, you know, just like the realness of this is that um, 
I'm hoping that I haven't done that to my kids. Uh, and I wonder also if sometimes, I don't know if this is true or not, I just wonder if maybe my wife sometimes struggles with some of these same feelings. But my kids love to talk about how, like, like the problem areas in their life and stuff. And they're already, you know, like, one of them's two, like, not even two yet, and the other one's three. You know, so, like, it, it comes so soon. You know, like, it comes at such an early age that you start to adopt these these ideas that becomes the fabric to the reality that you're going to be growing up with. And so, yeah, I, I probably need to be doing a better job at, like, making sure that my kids know that they're just made perfect. Hmm. So. I think, and part of the realization for me was that, like, well, I have all sorts of challenges with Eli. Like, yeah. maybe it's behavior one day, yeah. but sometimes it's, like, just relating. Yeah. And I realized that Eli is so much like me. Right. More than more than I understand because I don't remember being four. Yeah. But my parents tell me all the time, you were just like that. Yeah. And somewhere I also adopted the same narrative that you did. Right. That there was something wrong with me and God didn't like who I was. Yeah. And that's just I need to speak into that now. Yeah. So. Yeah. I I had a friend who who said something that was so profound that I wrote it down and we both had like we both were crying when we when he said it but like, um, he said uh. uh if I'm being honest to myself, I'm looking for God to be more real than my pain. Oh. And just like, oh man, like when he, when he said that, like it just spoke so much truth that like the pain that a person is going through just feels like, that feels like the fabric of what everything is. And, um, but, but there is this dimension of like God that is so much more real than even that pain but that pain like that pain needs to be paid attention to you know like because it is screaming out something inside of you um, but I think often we just try to ignore it and mm. it just becomes larger like it need we need to use like wound infection techniques for that so that we can move on to this next stage of like then basking in the love and the joy of like God, cre- how like God created us. Hmm. So good. And so the last thing is penal substitutionary atonement. Yeah. And <clears throat> in some ways, what we just talked about, yeah, it's almost like the idea that God hates us became theological theory. Yeah. And grew into this. Yeah. In some ways. And yeah. of course, there are some people that are going to yeah. listen and go, um, you're insane and you're now a false teacher, you're a heretic or something because I just put down penal substitutionary atonement theory. Yeah. But I am going to do that. Yeah. Well, I, I'll do it for you and then they won't call you a heretic. <laughs> it's fine. Being here on a heretic is okay. Yeah. Um, so penal substitutionary atonement theory. First thing we have to say, any atonement theory is theory, mm-hmm. right? That's right. So... That Jesus never said, let me just uh, teach you this theology called atonement theory. I'm going to die on a cross, and let me tell you how that works. Mm-hmm. Didn't happen. Yeah. We don't have that. So we've developed theories over time, and there are several theories, and there are books written on these theories. And I will even put in the show notes, um, there's a book called The Nature of Atonement. It shares four kind of main views of atonement theory that somebody can, can check out. Um, but there's even more than that. Like we were talking before we started recording about at least seven different theories that are yeah. out there. Um, the great theories. Um, yeah. And again, 
what we have to say is, is it possible that penal substitutionary atonement is the right theory? It's possible, I guess. But I'm going to say that it does more damage to our understanding of who God is than it does help. Mm. So, what is penal substitutionary atonement? It is that Christ is punished in the place of sinners. God hates sin, and his anger about sin has to be justified. Therefore, Jesus' death satisfies God's wrath, and it allows God to pronounce sinners as justified. All right? So God's angry, and God kills Jesus to satisfy his anger so that we are justified. That's the simple version of this. Um, One thing that should be said is some people will take that as God, Jesus died in order to pay the debt to the devil, right? Mm, that I think that might be... Technically, that's not penal substitutionary atonement. That's ransom ransom theory. Right, okay. Right, right, right. Sorry. So ransom theory is another one that you should check out. It's interesting. Um, There's also Christus Victor. Um, There's there's actually a one called Kaleidoscopic, which is a really cool one that kind of takes little bits and pieces from various and kind of knits them together in this um, holistic sense around atonement theory, which is really cool, too. Um, Anyway... um, so a couple things to point out. <laughs> this theory of atonement, the the issue here is the penal part. It's not the substitution part. Right. Jesus, I mean, we from Scripture, we can say that Jesus was substituted for us. But the anger piece, the wrath piece of God, that's the problematic piece that uh, we don't find backing for in Scripture, in my opinion. Is there anger? Yes. But is it God's anger? That's the question. So I'll get to that. Let me say this. This theory makes God a slave to his anger. It makes God's anger more powerful than God. So God hates sin so much that God's anger has to be satisfied in order for God to pronounce a sinner as justified. So God's anger has to be satisfied in order for God to do something else, which makes God a slave to his anger, which makes God's anger more powerful than God. And that's problematic to me. Very problematic. So think of a court system where the person is on, who is on trial is proven innocent. The story that we seem to be getting and that we're willing to then teach and propagate in the church is that the innocence of the person on trial is dependent upon the judge getting down and then using capital punishment on someone else. Right. So if you think of the courtroom analogy, Jesus stands in our place. Jesus takes our guilt onto himself. And so in order for us to be declared innocent, then the judge steps down and kills Jesus. Our innocence is dependent upon God killing someone else. Does that sound like good news? Not to me. Uh, There's a guy named Greg Boyd, and the book that I referenced, I'm going to put it in the show notes, he actually is one of the contributors to that. Uh, He's a pastor in Minnesota, St. Paul, Minnesota. And uh, he's also a theologian. He's writing tons of stuff. It's pretty, pretty great. Not all of it is, I think, what I would say is, is accurate, but a lot of it is pretty great. He uses a little parable to explain the idea of penal substitutionary atonement to us. He says, uh, let me introduce you to my friend Bruno. Bruno believes in things like love, joy, peace, and patience. He's a teacher, an incredible teacher. In fact, Bruno has a gift. He helps the blind to see, the lame to walk. He lays his hands on them and just incredible things happen. Bruno is absolutely incredible. You're going to find that Bruno is easy to love. Bruno wants to tell you about his father. He says that 
all of the good and wonderful and perfect gifts that Bruno has been given come from his father. So Bruno really wants you to meet him. After all, to love Bruno means to love his father. But I have terrible news for you. Before Bruno can introduce you to his father, uh, before you can have an actual relationship with his father, um, his father will have to kill him. Uh, oh, does that surprise you? Uh, Bruno's father can't stand to be around someone like you, someone so sinful and dirty and imperfect as you, that he needs to get his anger out, and the best way to do that is by killing Bruno? And that's the story that we seem to tell. So who wants to meet Bruno's dad? Nobody. Nobody wants to meet Bruno's dad. Because not only does that result in the death of Bruno, now we have added the guilt to our conscience that our desire to meet Bruno's dad leads to Bruno's death. That's a weird way to start a relationship off yeah. with Bruno's dad. Yeah. But that is this idea of penal substitutionary atonement. Um, it doesn't seem to be in alignment with the early church at all. If you go back to the book of Acts and you look at, I mean, there's over a dozen presentations of the gospel in, in the book of Acts. None of them even come close to, to sharing uh, penal substitutionary atonement, yeah. PSA. Um, not even close. In, a, in Isaiah 53, so I'm going to get to this whole like anger piece, right? Isaiah 53, this is one of the prophetic statements around Jesus uh, it says, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, okay, stricken by him and afflicted. So Jesus takes up our pain, he bears our suffering, and we considered him punished by God, stricken by God, afflicted by God. That's verse 4. Verse 5 starts out but says, but, okay, the first word of verse 5 is but, which leads us to conclude that verse 4 is an incorrect assumption, we made the assumption that God punished him, that God put our suffering on him, that God struck him down, that God's anger was here. But verse 5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds were healed. So there's wrath, there's anger, make no mistake, but it's not God's wrath. It's our wrath. It's our anger that's placed on Jesus not God's. Hebrews 9.22 says, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Again, this is a common verse that's used to um, teach about penal substitutionary atonement. And the thing that we hear from this verse most often is, without the shedding of blood there can be no forgiveness. True. The law requires it. Did God require it? No. The law requires it. So what we have is Jesus, the Son of God, coming to fulfill the law. Isn't that what we're told? Well, Jesus comes and enters into the law. He sheds his blood to bring the law to fulfillment. Not to bring God's wrath to be done, to fulfill the law. It's about the law and about what the law is required, not about what God has required. So penal substitutionary atonement it's problematic for me. I can't get around it and get behind it anymore, even though that's what I grew up with. Yeah. That's the picture that I was always presented. It seems to be the most obvious choice for tracks. If you find a track you know, in a, in a stall in the bathroom on the back of a toilet, this is the one that is clearly on, on all of them. And what it does is it leads us to believe that Jesus loves me. And I wrote this down when you were talking about this idea that God's not angry. Jesus loves me. 
it's almost saying Jesus loves me in spite of God not loving me. Jesus loves me. But what we have to realize is that God has loved us from the beginning. Yeah. God the creator breathes his life into us. God has always loved us. Yeah. Wow. So when do you think that you started to make this switch where you're like, this just doesn't add up to me? I think in some ways it was always just easy. Yeah. Like you, I mean, like this atonement theory is just easy. Mm-hmm. But it makes so many leaps that don't seem to add up with what we know about yeah. who God is. And so part of it is uh, I made the leap when I started to view Scripture with a truly Christocentric lens. Mm-hmm. Jesus is the image bearer, the perfect image bearer of God. If I believe that, if I believe that the life and the words of Jesus tell me who God is perfectly, then this doesn't make any sense. Right. So if we like believe in the in the Trinity, then it would be almost as if that scenario with the judge, you wouldn't necessarily need even someone else to come up. The judge could just come down and kill himself for that person. Because, uh, and that's, I think, where this thing gets kind of diluted is like it acknowledges that essentially Jesus wasn't God then. He was just a really perfect man. Mm. He was a perfect sacrifice, but his divinity isn't there then. Interesting. Because uh, for God to kill himself, well, then there would be no God. You know, like, so, like, we, we, start to, we start to strip the Trinity away, and then we really do, like, Islam or the Jews, would, the Jewish uh, faith would say about Christians, is that we really are polytheistic. Hmm. So, like, that's at least my take. I think the reason that we probably have adopted it is because, right, didn't Luther and Calvin get really behind? Yeah. Penal th- and like, Especially really, Calvin, for sure. Yeah, but, like, Calvin and, and Luther, like, I think what, the, what especially um, Protestantism, um, there are titles of names of people that we latch ourselves to, and it's almost like what they believed is good enough to be like, well, that was basically like Paul or Peter. Yeah. You know, like... Yeah, we're like, well, they're so smart. They got it so all together. I don't need to do the thinking about it myself. Right, right. Because they know more than I do. Right. They must know more than I do. Right. So we'll just memorize these, like, quips and sayings and really quick kind of uh, simplistic versions of these theories. Right. And we'll continue to propagate them. Right. Rather than going back, doing the work ourselves and going, wait, something doesn't seem to line up here. Is it really necessary that God was angry and God hates me so much he can't be near me and he has to kill Jesus so that he can be? Right. No. Does it make more sense that like somehow Jesus did take my sin upon himself? Yeah. And so one of the ways I've heard it is almost like, um, is like life, sin, death is a balloon. Yeah. And Jesus, it's like you're blowing the balloon up. Yeah. And Jesus goes and fills it to the yeah. point where it pops. Right. And because Jesus is so much bigger than it. What? Right. And that's what he's doing on the cross is taking all of this on himself. And Jesus goes and kind of like embraces the whole thing and just blows it up. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. And I don't feel like that somehow diminishes anything else. Right. And somehow we've taken like penal substitutionary atonement and said, well, this is gospel. Right. And until you preach this, well, you aren't preaching the gospel. Right. Right. Yeah. I think that um, it, it kind of explains to like, you know, Luther may have said a lot of really good things, but there's a lot of documentation about some of the bad things he said, too. And, like, uh, maybe when you have the view that God has this wrath that's so, so hot that he could kill his son, 
that um, now it explains that when that's your story of who God is and like what what that is, like he he then would say things like, "Well, we need to go kill all the Jews, right?" Like, he sure, was, it's like wow, like that that fire is hot in him then, and it gives him a, a really great excuse of like, and not even maybe not even excuse, like the story of like, well, anger is a part of God, and it's okay, it's a part of me, and I can like sit in that. Bad theology leads us to bad actions. Right. There's sure. no doubt in my mind. Right. In fact, I would say that I would be willing to argue to the death that we serve a God who doesn't kill children. <laughs> like, like we serve a God who doesn't demand child sacrifice. Right. Okay, so what's the whole purpose of the story of Abraham and Isaac? Right. Of, of Abraham hearing God call him to take his son and sacrifice him, going to the mountain, and then God providing a different sacrifice. Isn't, it, isn't the point of that to say, here's a new picture? Every other god that you've heard of in the ancient Near East requires child sacrifice, and this is the ultimate sacrifice. But I'm a god that doesn't require that. Yeah. Okay, so we serve a god who doesn't demand this, and yet we are propagating a theory that says God absolutely demands this. Yeah. That doesn't make sense to me. Right. And that doesn't even involve jesus right that is all god old testament abraham isaac stuff yeah so to me there's just too many places where this doesn't line up or it doesn't line up enough to be helpful right and so it's not a theory that i'm willing to go and say like well i'm going to preach this from the pulpit yeah nah i can't do it right i just can't get behind it right in the end of the day is it right maybe i'm not going to know though in this place right so maybe someday i'll find out it's closer to being accurate than than it is but I think the gospel is supposed to be good news. Yeah. Well, you know, and like even just what I was talking about, like God's love being felt. Well, it doesn't sound like if, like I thought God was angry at me, but it turns out I was angry at myself, right? Like, well, if God can be that angry at Jesus, maybe God would be angry at me then. Right. And so these these feelings and uh, the way that I'm experiencing God now, which is significantly more close than what I've ever felt God, um, must all just be in my head and terrible. Hmm. You know you know what I mean? Like, clearly God really is pretty angry at me, and I need to, to get right with the ship, you know? Um, and so I guess that when the majority of evangelicalism is, is believing this, it makes sense that, like, we come across as pretty angry people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if this, is, if this is our truth of who God is, God is wrathful and can do this to our beloved Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and this totally fits in the framework of Reformed theology. Reformed right. theology that, that, again, tells us that we are totally and utterly depraved human beings. Right. Well, then, of course, it makes sense that God's angry at me. Yeah. I'm a totally depraved human being. There is not a semblance of the divine in me. Yeah. There's no little voice of Jesus inside of me because I'm a depraved human being. Yeah. Well, so then this makes sense. Yeah. And we think of Reformed theology, interestingly enough, as kind of the, the, the intellectual side of Christianity. Right. And and that it's sad to me because I think that actually reformed theology it has an, an a pretty specific ending point. Yeah. It's not a good one. Yeah. And I think you could push a little deeper and get to a whole different place. Yeah. But that's just me. Yeah. So So that's that's our Man. Five each. Five each. Five things we don't believe anymore. Yeah. And I'm sure that there are gonna be five more in no time. And five yeah probably even just a year. Yeah. But. Awesome. Thanks for sharing, man. Yeah, you too, man. Well, that's the second five of the things that we used to believe that we don't believe anymore. 
And as we said before, the process of looking back on your previous belief systems, your previous frameworks, is actually a pretty amazing thing to see how you've grown, how you've changed, uh, what events in your life or people in your life have actually shaped you. And so uh, it can be really easy for all of us to simply get into the routine of kicking back and listening to podcasts. I'll be honest, when I mow the grass, That is like the two hours a week that I set aside to make sure I get some good podcast time in. And it can be really easy for me to just engage it in that way at that time. But what I want you to to do, I really want to encourage you, is to consider maybe making your own list of five things that you don't believe anymore. Or maybe it's just one thing. Maybe as we've talked on these last two episodes, uh, you've shared some of the things that we've changed our beliefs around. Or maybe it's, it's piqued your memory and you are actually remembering certain things that you believed when you were 18 or 20 or 30 that you don't believe anymore. Lean into that a little bit, push into it and really think through why you don't believe in that stuff anymore. What has changed? And then as my good brother Doug would say, Perhaps maybe you should meditate on it. Take some time to really think on it, to stew on it, to pray about it. And thank God for the fact that you are growing and that he's continually shaping you into his new creation. Have a blessed day.